Hi, I'm Harini. I'm Camille. And this is The News Podcast. Hi, and welcome back to The News Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Serene Singh, an incredibly multi-talented woman, a Rhodes Scholar, a dancer, national All-American Miss, an activist, founder of The Serenity Project and Gem Powered, author to a children's book, and this list goes on and on. You've done so much amazing work and I'm super interested to get to know you more. It's lovely having you on the podcast today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to start before we get on to the work that you've done, just to get to know you, um, what is it like studying in Oxford? What's it like being a Rhodes Scholar and being a woman in academia? What has your experience been of all of that? Well, I think they are separate experiences. I mean, I would say from the Rhodes experience, being at Oxford, which is, I think, in general, for many students, a lonely place in terms of, you know, it's a a place that requires independence. It's a place that requires freedom of thought, freedom of decision. Students can decide to go to classes or they can decide not to. They can decide to pick up clubs or not to. And, you know, my undergrad was in the United States, and that wasn't really how our system was set up. And so I think Oxford is lonely in that way if you allow it to be. But I would say because I'm a Rhodes Scholar and because of the Rhodes community, uh, I have a home away from home here. And that is through the Rhodes Scholarship. That is, you know, every single day of the week, there is support within the trust in the house that is there to protect and to make sure students feel cared for and uh like Oxford is a little less lonely. So that is something I'll always be really grateful for. And I find that it is, it, it, it brings out parts of myself that I didn't necessarily know I had, which is really cool because um, I'm very used to public facing, out facing roles where in which I'm speaking to crowds or I'm working with people, um, I'm engaging with larger audiences. And academia brings out a side of me where in which I'm engaging, but I'm engaging with research and it's on a computer screen in the middle you know, of the night and trying to figure out and sort out what, what's the next step for my data collection. And that is a unique set of skills that I never thought that I would be approaching. I think the gender aspect of it actually comes in so far as more of my research topic, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later, but that the, my research topic focuses on women exclusively and I think most of the things, as you've mentioned, what I've done are focused around women. So gender empowerment is really critical to who I am. It's my lens on the world. Um, so I'm sure there's many other areas that academia has been influenced by my lens. And I'm sure we can also go into that too. Yeah, of course, we can talk about your research projects. Um, but first, on the subject of you again, I kind of wanted to touch a little on your faith, if that's okay with you, especially the ways in which that intersects with your identity as a woman like how do you think we can be more inclusive on that front with representing and including intersectional identities within academic institutions right well I would say from my personal experience I have found that as a sick woman it is upon me and it is my duty and job (laughs) oftentimes in spaces that I'm in to be the one to educate, to represent, and ask for opportunities. And I'm happy to do that because that is in my nature and that's kind of what I have been brought up with. But I will say that that is a system that is already bound in many ways um, to emotionally labor certain individuals. 
and to allow other individuals to not have to ask for opportunities or have to inquire if they can be a part of X, Y, and Z, or if they can celebrate X, Y, and Z, or if they can think about and lead a discussion on blank. Um, 100%. Because it's already, it's already within the curriculum. It's already within the system. It's already embedded. For instance, you know, um, the Latin prayer in Oxford, right? Like every college formal just has that as the tradition. And so students that maybe have that as their part of, you know, their background, whether they took it in school or whether that represents their denomination or their faith, that is the norm. But someone like myself, my Sikh identity is the norm. That's my faith. That's my background. But that's not embedded in the system. And that's the challenging part because I have to go and ask for it to be embedded once or twice, whereas students who have that as part of their norm don't have to do anything different than just exist. And so I think the more that we can implore leaders to identify the diversity in the body of students that they represent and to allow that to actually flourish in the front of leadership, that is better for everyone because students shouldn't just go to Oxford University and experience what they've known their whole life. They should come here and meet people that they've never thought of meeting before and experience cultures that they never knew existed and learn languages that they didn't even know had, you know, the the type of richness to them. That's that's the beauty of higher education. And I think we're missing the point when we don't embed it. Yeah, completely agree with everything you just said. In terms of outside of academia, though, and making intersectional identities included in society more widely, do you think the same principles that you talked about, like leadership, sharing cultures, diversity and that sort of stuff translates across easily? Totally. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I remember as a little girl growing up in Florida Springs, it was something that my family always made a point to do, which is to educate our like local law enforcement about who the Sikh community is. So that way, if someone was, you know, a victim of a crime and they had a turban or if someone was um, unable to speak English and they were only speaking Punjabi, how what would be the right way to approach the situation? And what not, what what they should know about our faith. But even as a young girl, it struck me of like, I wonder if other people have to do this too. I wonder if other people have to go above and beyond and say, hey, these are these are ways that you could respond to our community in a very aggressive and harmful way if you're not careful, if you don't do your homework about who we are beforehand. And I think it's followed me throughout life. It's something that I think about all the time of if a leader comes in with certain biases or preconceived notions that they're unwilling to address and think about, especially in their position of power, it it has a ripple effect. Yeah, 100%. And I know that in terms of increasing awareness and education, you've done quite a lot yourself, including author a book, The Queen Machine. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about that? I think that that's really cool. Yeah, I love The Queen Machine book. Um, It was, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't even know where to start when it comes to The Queen Machine book. But it, I mean, it was a it was a passion project for probably many years. Although properly, the initiative started after I'd won National All-American Miss, where yeah. in which I would I was granted such a powerful opportunity to meet, you know, thousands of kids each month. And when I would go and visit these kids, the immediate reaction with my crown and banner was, oh, my gosh, she's a princess. Oh. I wish I could be like her. And me, the reaction was like, I don't want these kids to think she's this. I'm here. I'll never get there. I don't want I don't want there to be that disparity. Now, the reality is, of course, that is my job. I am a title holder. I, I was a queen during the year, but I wanted to leave them something that they could also see whether or not it's pageantry, whether it's football, whether it's science fair, whether it's math lab, like whatever it is that someone's interested in. I wanted them to truly believe that they with enough hard work 
and passion and relentless you know focus on whatever that might be they can reach that queen stage of anything and just like I did for pageantry I wanted them to know that that is also possible for their end and we're not some different type of being um, and I'm not higher levels than them just because of the crown on my head and so that was something I really wanted to focus on how could I leave them something that could be empowering rather than just you know Serene's a queen I met her today great sounds good so that was the main impetus for the book and it's a really powerful book. I interviewed a lot of little kids before I actually developed the storyline and the plot because I thought to myself, I know what it's like to be a little South Asian girl living in America and the, the struggles I faced, the types of comments that were, you know, headed my way, but I didn't really know what it's like to be a little black girl yep. or for instance, a little girl who had a speech impediment. And so, and you know, or even like a, a little girl who, who, um, who's a representative of the LGBTQ plus community. So these are these are the different types of characters in the book that I wanted to make sure I had enough data from kids their age of what do you do? What do people say to you? What are the challenges you experience? And the characters in the book are based off of those interviews. They're based off of those focus groups that I conducted. Um, and at the very end of the book, there's a couple of pages that I think speak to the real purpose of the book. One of them is a queen quiz. The Queen Quiz is an opportunity for kids to fill out for themselves a worksheet on what makes themselves special. Not about what makes themselves pretty and why their hair is so cool, but like, who are they? What are their dreams? Like, what are their characteristics? What do their friends say about them? And then the last two pages are one research page for parents and guardians. And then the last page is one research page uh, for educators and what it's like to have girls in the classroom as well as girls at home and what are uplifting, empowering ways and skills and, you know, tools to ensure that the ways that we speak to girls at that young of an age is uplifting and empowering, not one that is demeaning. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I really agree with the sentiment that it needs to start at a young age so that kids can then grow up feeling feeling empowered or at the very least have the skills and the resources to empower themselves uplift themselves or their friends when they might not be feeling so great because it's not a constant state of yay like today's good day today's good day but like I think it is about you know building it up and 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 letting them see it through characters and stuff so that's that's great and also I think the pageantry stuff is amazing you've had a lot of success modeling and in pageants you've won national all-american miss do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you got into sort, that sort of thing and and what it's like but also, I know that there's a lot of discourse surrounding pageants and criticism, actually, on whether they are inherently misogynistic and can be toxic to participants, or if they are instead very empowering, inclusive, uplifting to women, especially recently when I think there's been a greater focus on inclusion and intersectionality in those spaces. What's your experience been of that stuff? Well, I'll start by this. I think people who have criticisms towards pageantry, it's important to have them about any activity in the world of what is it actually doing for the people. But I will say this, it's very important before um, we criticize something from like a television show or from what we see in media that, you know, the same people actually embed themselves within it for a little bit. Go visit a pageant. Go see what it's like. Go talk to the participants. Because suddenly, I think what we realize is we had an understanding and an illusion in our head of what it could look like. And then in person, you recognize that so much of those notions that we thought we knew were actually completely false. And I say that because that was my experience as well. When I first joined pageantry in 2014, 
I remember very clearly thinking, I'm going to hate this. This is not my crowd of people. I don't belong here, but I'm going to still try it because, you know, I'm going to be a really bad judge one day. And that was my dream, you know, to be to be a judge. I thought I'm going to be a really bad judge if I don't have the ability to even put my bias aside for something like pageantry. Yeah. That was my reason for trying it out. And it was very much an approach of I'm going to do it once and I'm never going to do it again. And it was only during that pageant where I remembered somehow I got called into the top 10. And I was thinking out of all the women here, you know, out of all the, it was the junior teen category. So I was a little bit younger, but out of all the people here, like, how did I get in the top 10? Because, you know, I had flip flops. I didn't wear any makeup. My mom and I had no idea what to do with my hair. I was wearing my sister's $2 Oxfam Goodwill dress. You know, like I really didn't know what was going on and I had it prepared and I knew, I knew that pageantry takes preparation, but I knew that I didn't do that work. So I'm in the top 10. And for the first time in my life, as someone who is ultra competitive, ultra ambitious, very hardworking, I looked to the left and right of me and I thought, well, some stroke of luck must have hit me because I'm in the top 10. But I was, again, for the first time in my life, praying that that stroke of luck would end. Because I said, you know, these girls around me are beaming with confidence. They are like, it is almost like they're in their own world and it doesn't matter what the results are. It doesn't matter who gets called as the winner or anything. Like they are just like, empowered and stepping into their own self and they all are very different and they all have different goals and hopes and expectations for themselves but they all just look so confident in who they are and I was standing there like get me off this stage I don't want to be here anymore I don't know what stroke of luck hit me but I don't want to be here and I don't want to win this crowd and that was a really weird feeling for me because I'm so used to being in situations where I'm like I've worked really hard I deserve this I want this period um, let's see if it can be mine. But that was the first time in my life where I said, I really don't want this because I don't deserve it. And for me, then the next, you know, however many years that was, I think it's seven, the focus was, I want to get to that point where I can be in that stage and also be beaming with confidence that it doesn't matter the results. It doesn't matter anything else. I need to know that as a woman, as who I am is more than enough for me. And I think that that is like a skill set that is very underestimated. A hundred percent. And I'll say one more thing about pageantry. We have many shows about modeling, right? Like America's Next Top Model, Britain's Next Top Model, right? We've got many shows on talent. Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent. Like there's all these shows, right? We've got many shows on intellect, right? Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Um, Spelling bees, um, you know, quiz bowls. These kinds of shows exist. But suddenly when we combine, you know, all three of them, and, you know, maybe volunteer service and resume and things like that. Now it's something that is objectifying women. And so I think there's something that society has to really question about why is it that we think that women can't be multidisciplined? Why is it that when we involve multiple areas of, of, um, of consistency, multiple areas of accolade and success, that we suddenly think that women are objectifying themselves? Because pageantry is not a one you know, it's, it's, it's an Olymp- it's like the Olympics, it's multiple different scores to which um, the best title holder is picked. And so I yeah. think there's really important that we teach young girls when it comes to pageantry and, and activities like that, of you don't have to just be smart. You don't have to just be a model. You don't have to just be this. You, you can be many things. You're a multitude. And that dimensionality is so critical for girls to learn. No, I think I think that's that's so important. That's a brilliant message. Um, and it's brilliant that you've done that and been so critical and pushed yourself to do something completely out of your comfort zone and then found something really great in it. 
but the thing I want to pick out in that is is the word confidence and I think that that's that's really key because I think especially what you were talking about before how it's kind of the onus is on marginalized communities to to be the people that 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 raise awareness to educate other communities to be change makers Mm -hmm. um without being empowered and without feeling confidence in themselves you, you can't really do that um how did that kind of lead you into starting the serenity project I think that that's that's really cool and that's something I want to talk about a bit more um I mean firstly do you want to kind of explain what it is to our viewers absolutely yeah the serenity project properly you know really was initiated in 2016 and this the original organizers of the very first project were all pageant women and we had benefited so much from the system of pageantry and we thought to ourselves as you know looking at how we were when we started pageantry to where we are now we have gained confidence we've gained an understanding of authenticity we've gained a deeper sense of self and sense of reflection of who we are and what we can contribute to the world and those are skills that are that have to be experienced they can't be taught they're not in schools they have to be experienced and pageantry for us was that experience but we also recognized that there was many barriers to access for pageantry including financial including the risk taking of I might hate this activity but I'm going to still do it not everyone yeah. can afford that type of a risk and that is something that is a costly risk pageantry is not a cheap sport um and we started to recognize those barriers and we thought well what if we created a project where in which we reached out to those women those girls and women that you know in in many parts of their life struggle with acceptance and the the folks that we were really most concerned with especially at the time we're we're at risk women and so that's more of the legal definition of girls and women that struggle with body dysmorphia um and have challenges that you know of their past regarding violence uh human trafficking foster care um acid attacks like these the girls and women are are individuals that have had traumatic experiences or violent experiences or have you know difficulty with self-confidence and our focus was if we reach out to this exact population and we help implore them and give them the, the tools and skills that we've developed through pageantry, um, potentially we can create a powerful community of women that are there to support and uplift each other despite the challenges that we've gone through, but more than despite them, in spite of them, because only from there has they continue to that ripple effect of empowering more people and uplifting more people who are of their same similar background in their communities. And so that was the really the start of the Serenity Project. The project itself now, many years later, has grown and flourished in so many cool ways. It's taken a life of its own and it is very uh it's very admiring to see because I think there are there are brilliant minds that we get to work with every single day. Um we have three main pillars, the first of which is a charitable fashion show. And that fashion show for the past two years has taken place in Oxford. So the first one was in 20... Well, the very first fashion show was in 2016 but or 2017. But last year it was at the Oxford Union. And then this year it was at the Museum of Natural History in Oxford. And so every year a new organization will help partner with us and they'll take on that fashion show. And it's a really cool kickoff event where in which the models, the designers, the MCs, the performers, all of them are individuals who identify with this cause of self-esteem and importance of promoting um, and challenging body dysmorphia. And so that is our focus of how can we, how can we really transform those runways? So it's not the typical 
expectations of what you would see at a fashion show. It's completely flipped on its head and it's empowering in doing so. Um, so we're spotlighting resilience on the runway rather than spotlighting anything else that our fashion industry or our society tells us deserves to be in the spotlight. So it's a cool take on challenging fashion shows. And I think that's Beverin's favorite part of the Serenity Project. The second yes. part, though, we realized after the fashion show, a lot of the women that we worked with said, hey, that was amazing, but we want more. Like, we can't just have, you know, a fashion show and then we don't get to, like, work with the women and get to experience the, the different approaches to building up self-confidence. And so that's when we have our self-love, self-compassion curriculum. It's called our soaring curriculum. It is a six-month-long curriculum where in which virtually all of the women work together on an online platform to go through exercises building many different parts that includes uh mindfulness that includes fundraising that includes entrepreneurial skills that includes interviewing resume development the skills are kind of all-encompassing but also focused around whatever it is that the woman kind of most needs for her toolkit there's an avenue or a place in that curriculum for which they can build upon it and the final part of the curriculum fills in that last gap of, yep. okay, I have the curriculum, I have the fashion show under my belt, but who's going to help me kind of make my dream a reality? And so all the women embark on a passion project of their choice, whatever it might be. It might be, I want to create an art gallery in my room that helps remind me the importance of healing when I need it most. It might be, I want to create an own, my own nonprofit or I want to lobby against asset attacks in my Congress. It could be whatever yep. they want, but we pair them up with a mentor somewhere around the world who will help them create that dream possible. And so these are female founders, female entrepreneurs, female success stories who are passionate about giving back their skills. And what better community to give it back to than women who are ambitious and ready to take on that next stage, but need a little bit of support. So that is the Serenity Project. It is really amazing that you've set that up. Um, uh, just, yeah, no, so cool. Just to end things off, I just want to draw it full circle and go back to you and your research and prove that a woman can have it all. Yeah, you have so many amazing things going on. Do you want to explain your research a little bit more and talk talk about what, what you're doing currently? Yeah, I would love to. So, I mean, like many things, <laughs> gender is a very important part of my identity and, and yes. especially women's empowerment. And so that is, you know, nothing new for my research. My research, uh, I'm doing my DPhil in criminology at Oxford and the focus is on the experiences of women on death row in American prisons and the reason why that was important to me is many folds but I think the the critical part of it that is important especially for research in academia is the fact that there is almost there's very little known about the women on death row in America other than their exact cases and their exact crimes as in when insofar as they enter into the prison system, what happens to them, their lives, their experiences, the challenges they face, the the trials that they have from that point on, we we almost don't know anything about. And that is something that I find very difficult and problematic in many ways, mostly because um, just because there's few women on death row in America does not mean that their stories are not critical for us to, you know, analyze and understand because they will tell us a lot about the system being broken and in what ways is it broken and for who is it broken. And moreover, you know, if we look at something like the prison system in the United States or even worldwide about how prisons are set up, why they're set up, who they're intended to cause suffering to, we really understand that most of our prison hierarchy and setup was never created with women in mind. It was created yep. with a different biology in mind, a, a different 
physiology in mind and a different set of concerns to address and to think about. And so when you input women into a system that was never designed with any sense of intention to house women, you can understand that suddenly the system was never going to work for them in many ways to begin with. Mm-hmm. But unless we know exactly what those are or what can be challenged, policy, law, um, experiences in general, resources for women continue to lack. And so for me, while it is important that one day, you know, our our justice system, especially in the United States, works towards really intentional reform, I think in the immediate, my goal with this research is to understand what those changes need to be more directly, not from, you know, lawyers who have had Yale, Harvard, Stanford experience and have continued to go through higher education and now work on the other end of things on behalf of the women, but more so from the women themselves who are closest to the problems that they're experiencing on a daily basis of what are the gaps? What are the disparities that people do not know? Most people, I would say, don't even know about death row itself. What does that look like? They know something or another, maybe from a crime scene that they've watched or a crime show that they've watched, but they, they don't know the depths of it. And so for me, I can stand here, you know, sitting here as, as a researcher at Oxford and thinking that I know what the experience is like from the academic reports I read or from the interviews I see of lawyers and family members. But the people that know are the women. And it's for me, this research is critical because it's going to be centered at the women. Yeah. And I think I think that's actually what I've come to learn. And I think I admire most about you that you've taken women whose voices are not heard and, and you've given them platforms to well, through your research and through the projects that you've started alongside to 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 come to the forefront of conversation, which is which is really brilliant. But thank you so, so, so much for coming on and talking about yourself a little bit. Like, like that was great. Thanks so much. I had a lovely time and I appreciate it. If you have enjoyed this episode, feel free to check out our website, www.newslondon.co.uk, where we post new blogs and articles every week. If you'd also like to get in touch, give us feedback or contribute blogs and articles, you can contact us via our email, which is admin at newslondon.co.uk, or you can check out our Instagram and DM us at news underscore LDN. This was the News Podcast.